thanks very much. So I feel like I've crashed a wedding um, <laughs> in, in that all of you lovely people have come together today in this kind of cathedral of, every, uh, of all things archival to bear witness to and celebrate and express your love for data standards. And I am not here to talk about data standards. Well, I will talk about standards, legal standards, ethical standards, and uh, professional standards. Um, so I want to thank Kathy for inviting me along. I also want to thank Jeff for my new favorite phrase, ever. If he, I don't know if he's still here, but yeah, he is. Which is that uh, research without impact doesn't butter any parsnips. <laughs> I'm going to be appropriating and using that a lot in discussions with colleagues as we plan our impact strategy for REF 2020. Okay, so more than just data standards, um, enabling online access. I should also say that uh, a lot of this presentation is based on work that I've done with Victoria Stobo, who's here, but I'm going to be doing all the talking. Victoria's done all the kind of intellectual heavy lifting around this project, but I like to claim all the credit. So. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the, the front face of it. We need to talk about the C word. You can't, data standards, obviously, I love a good standard, right? Um, they're really, really important. But you can't engage users with a really satisfying emotional experience. You can't embrace the potential of visualizing data uh, without making content available online as well. And that triggers concerns about copyright. We had a little moment of copyright anxiety earlier today. Again, Jeff, I'm going to come back to you when he disclosed that the presentation that you got today will not be the same presentation that makes it into the, that gets archived, you know, as, as part of this. And why? Because there's material there that doesn't have the time or possibly the inclination to clear writing. Um, so copyright is always there. I'm from the University of Glasgow. Uh, I'm the founding director of CREATE, which is a pioneering interdisciplinary initiative and globally the first effort to investigate creativity, regulation, enterprise and technology through the lens of copyright. So it's a big project. Um, we, it's a consortium of seven universities. We've got 40 projects running with a whole range of um, uh, academics who are lawyers, uh, economists, computer scientists, sociologists and, so on, and archivists. So that's the end of the pitch. Digitizing archive collections triggers concerns about copyright, and, right, and rightly so. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Archives, we undertake to work together in order that archives are made accessible to everyone while respecting the pertinent laws and rights of individuals, creators, owners, and users. That's really important. 30 years ago, Terry Cook labeled copyright as the perennial hornet's nest for archivists, and that was in a pre-digital environment. If you want to make material available online, you're going to be copying that material and you're going to be communicating it to the public. And those are two of the fundamental rights that lie at the heart of the, this is the copyright 101 bit, right? Um, that, that lie at the heart of the copyright regime. So unless the work that you're dealing with is in the public domain, or unless you can rely on an appropriate exception, then you need to clear rights, unless you own those rights, of course. Now, in terms of duration, Typically, works in the UK, works of literature, drama, music, art, are protected for the life of the author, plus 70 years. But we have really insane transitional provisions that relate to unpublished, certain unpublished materials. So if you're dealing with unpublished material that's historic, created by an author who died before 
at any time before uh, 1969, then that work is still in copyright. It's absurd. T Tim Patfield told me that somewhere in this building, there's a manuscript by Elizabeth I of her version of Beowulf that she wrote as a child that has never been published. It's still in copyright today. So it's mad. Um, so in the UK, when you're dealing with historic unpublished materials, the public domain is not as vast and big as it is in other jurisdictions. That's the problem. There are exceptions, of course, for libraries and archives, but not exceptions that enable you to make material available online. When I sent this presentation uh, to Cathy, I said, reforms are coming. Well, maybe they're not, actually. <laughs> uh, we don't know what's happening. They're, they're being slightly derailed. But there is a suggestion, a new section 43A, about digitizing and making work available on dedicated terminals within your institutions. And that's a good step forward, OK, in terms of preservation and enabling access. Um, but if you want to post that stuff that's in copyright online, then you need to clear rights. And clearing rights is really expensive. Um, from my perspective, it imposes prohibitive burdens, I think, on cultural heritage institutions. When you engage in rights clearance, often the results aren't terribly satisfactory. And I think within this kind of cultural heritage space, the burdens of rights clearance are often far more onerous for archives because of the nature of the collections that you have than they are for libraries and or perhaps museums. So a couple of examples of rights clearance um, projects that you may or may not have come across. There was a, a, the John Cohen AIDS Research Collection, which I forget where it's based. Anyway, it was the, it was the, there was a study of the rights clearance uh, process here. There were total items in copyright, 5,463. <coughs> the people running the project identified nearly 1,400 copyright owners. And of those, they could identify 87% of those owners, which is a really high result. So the orphan works, 13%. Of the people that they contacted, 79% responded, and 95% said, yes, use our stuff. That's great. I'm really delighted that you're making this available. 5% said no. But it meant in total that over a third of the collection was not digitized because the institution did not want to infringe copyright. They did not want, they wanted to adhere to a, a policy of strict copyright compliance. Uh, another example, uh, another American digitization initiative, the Thomas E. Watson Papers. Uh, so Thomas E. Watson was a kind of a minor uh, a senator in, in the States in the early 20th century. And they set about digitizing this collection of material. And the, in the correspondence series, there were 7,253 items, letters, pieces of correspondence. Correspondence list, 3,304. They identified 608 of those as having died before 1939. Now, that was important in America because it meant that stuff was in the public domain. Of the rest, they could only identify four rights holders. They wrote to them, three responded and said, yes, use our stuff. So they spent 
$8,000 getting three permissions out of four known copyright holders uh, from a list of over two and a half thousand. Now, is that good value for money? I think that's an important question to ask. Orphan works are often a problem in terms of these uh, rights clearance processes. And for those of you who don't know, an orphan work is a uh, so-called orphan work is a work where you can't identify who the rights holder is or you can't get um, reliable contact details for that person. Um, and there are lots of reasons why works become orphaned, but we've got, for the last five or six years, uh, all across the world, different copyright regimes have been thinking about how to address the issue of orphan works. And we've got two schemes, one sitting at a European level, one sitting in the UK, that are slightly different, but are going to operate in parallel. And in the EU, we're getting a new exception to facilitate the reuse of orphan works. It benefits, largely speaking, cultural institutions. It only relates to certain types of material, and it only relates to certain types of use, primarily non-commercial preservation, digitization, and display. And the condition is diligent search. You need to engage in diligent search before you can benefit from the exception. In the UK, there's a, a, there's a more robust scheme, which is a licensing scheme, and it will operate in parallel with this new exception. So anyone can uh, apply. It relates to all types of copyright-protected content. You can do anything with it, whether it's commercial or non-commercial. And the conditions are, again, diligent search and an upfront license fee. So you need to pay something. We don't know what that threshold will be yet, especially for non-commercial activities, um, but there will be a fee. Will these schemes help you digitise and make your material available? Well, Tim Padfield does not think so. So two wonderful new schemes for Orphan Works, one from the European Union, one from the UK Government. Frankly, neither of them will be a great deal of use to archivists. I agree. Uh, Peter Hurtle, who's a senior policy advisor to Cornell University and a research fellow in Harvard, says exactly the same thing. Diligent search does not scale. It is too expensive. So they might be useful for one-off digitization, but if you want to engage in mass digitization of a lot of orphan material in your collection, it, it's just not going to work. So what do you do with the copyright <coughs> problem? I mean, one way of doing it is, is what a lot of institutions do, is just don't digitize material that's in copyright. Either stick with material where the depositor has given you a license or transferred copyright to use the whole <coughs> institution, or work with material in the public domain. And while that works for institutions elsewhere in the world, that's really tough in the UK because of those absurd transitional provisions that mean unpublished material is still in copyright to 2039. So that's one way of doing it. Um, just avoid the copyright problem by avoiding copyright material. But of course, that often means it's not the best material that you want to digitize. The best material is often still uh, protected. So a different strategy, and that's really what I want to talk about, is about embracing risk, by which I mean 
taking sensible risks. So, when we were doing this work, um, Victoria interviewed a lot of people and we had a conference at the end and a lot of people made exactly this point. Christy Henshaw, welcome. Copyright clearance is about managing risk always. Peter Yazzie, one of the foremost American jurists on copyright. Decisions about copyright clearance are always considerations based in the end on a version, a vision of risk and a risk tolerance within a particular institution. Natalie Adams at Churchill, there will always be some degree of risk. Tim Padfield again. Archivists are going to have to accept risk if they want to do the things that they want to do and that the politicians want them to do. Risk management, he thinks, is going to become more and more important. Again, I agree. Digitising archive collections is always about risk. That's my take-home message. Always about risk. So I want to... I haven't really... Well, we'll see how this goes. So there's a great <laughs> project, the Olympic record. It's a fantastic project. Um, and uh, it's all about government documents, documentation records and so on, around GB's engagement with the Olympics since uh, its inception. So there's, there's tons of material here. Um, and this is one of the... Now you can't really see this very well, but this is one of the, the things that um, when you search you might come across this. While most of this stuff is crime copyright, there is some embedded third party material in here. So these are extracts from the Times in 1935. Now I know that the TNA will have negotiated with the Murdoch Empire. <laughs> and I imagine they said, that's fine. Okay, you know, this is, the, this is a, a super use. Uh, run with it. But, the, so these two things are letters that were written to the Times. So these things are copyright protected, perhaps, but the Times does not hold the rights in those letters. Now, I don't know if TNA has cleared rights in letters written to the Times in 1935. I don't know. And I'm not going to ask. They said, don't ask, don't tell. Uh, policy. <laughs> my, so my, my point here is that even the most assiduous and careful institution engaging in mass digitization might let things slip through the net. Might. Might. So you should always have an appropriate copyright policy an appropriate takedown policy. The TNA has got a great one. Um, material will be taken down temporarily on receipt of a request um, for a variety of reasons. A takedown panel will consider it and the takedown panel will approve continued withdrawal if one of the following criteria is met. The material is infringing someone's copyright. So there is at least some kind of implicit acknowledgement that some things might slip through the net. But one way of managing reputational risk and harm and liability, develop an appropriate takedown policy. The other reason that I like this example is because it leads me, it segues 
into the fact that we know this, different institutions have different appetites for risk. So when we talk to the welcome, Christy Henshaw there said, well, listen, if you come across a stray newspaper clipping, we don't regard that as very high risk. Let's just digitize and put it up. That's not an attitude that TNA would endorse, I don't think. But it's one that Welcome felt able to endorse. And that was really what our project was all about. It was looking at the Welcome's Codebreakers project, which was their first mass digitization uh, initiative. And they used it to launch the Welcome Digital Library. Um, and we spent six months with them talking about their rights clearance processes, talking about their appetite and attitude to risk. So this was a, a digitization pilot concerning genetics in the 20th century, all in copyright material. Uh, it was the welcome and also five partner archives, including um, KCL. They launched in 2012 with over 2 million <laughs> images and obviously thousands and thousands of potential copyright holders. And they decided at the start of the project that we just don't have the time and the resource to clear rights in everything. So they developed risk criteria. So I should say or point out that they were digitizing both library published, commercially published materials as well as archive collections. They developed this risk criteria. We could have a, a separate session on whether this is or these are appropriate criteria. Um, and they drew up a, a short long list, a long short list of about 500 names, and then they whittled it down to 160. They said these are the people that we're going to specifically ask for permission. They identified 134 contact details. So there was you know, a bunch of stuff that was orphaned here as well. Sent out letters, they got 103 replies, and of those 103 replies, 101 said, fine, do what you like. And two said no. 26 did not respond. And in relation to those do not responds, they reconsidered the risks involved in making that material available and decided only to withhold material belonging to three of those do not responds. So like a really robust, foolhardy, courageous attitude to digitizing material and squaring some of the problems that come with copyright clearance. So some lessons maybe. When asked, people tend to grant permission. If you're an archive or a library or a museum engaging in a non-commercial digitization project to enable uh, engagement with your collection, to enable research and so on, people tend to say yes. 98% of respondents for Codebreakers said yes. In the John Cohn project um, that I talked about before, 95% of respondents said yes. So because of the nature of the material that you're dealing with, arguably the default position of those rights holders is, please do make this material available. And almost universally, they tend to do so without asking for a fee, right? In relation to Codebreakers, and John Cohen, in both cases, only one respondent asked for any kind of remuneration. In John Cohen, they said no, 
And then that rights holder said, oh, well, use it anyway then. <laughs> in Code Breakers, one respondent said, well, I don't want money, but I'd like you to make a donation to a charity. And Welcome did. But they would not. They, I mean, they, they decided at the start, we're not going to pay any license fees. If people say no, people want money, we won't pay, we won't digitize, we won't display. But typically, most people who respond say yes, and they don't want money. And that um, kind of turns uh, often how policymakers think about copyright on its head, right? Because they think about copyright as something that drives the creative economy. They're thinking about musicians and, well, maybe not poets, but musicians, filmmakers, uh, artists, photographers, and so on. People who actively want to leverage revenue from their work. But most of the material held in archive collections is not that kind of material. In fact, quite the reverse. The reason it makes it into an archive is because it was not created for commercial reasons, because it was not um, created with the intention to exploit, but because it bears witness to some kind of transaction of everyday or business or government life. So the greater your appetite for risk, the more material you can make available online, naturally. Uh, and I, sometimes I, I wonder sometimes, I'm kind of proselytizing, right, the virtues of risk, but sensible risk, measured risk, and just thinking through what a, a reasonable position is, and I think with any institution, if you're working that through, always talk to senior management, right? Get their buy-in, don't do anything, don't expose yourself to risk within your institution or you know, within the wider world. Um, does, do senior management have any appetite for risk? And if so, can it, should it shape the way in which you approach digitization? And yet, like this is really important. Peter Hertel at a conference that we organized last September, who is a risk advocate, said the biggest problem here we have are our own professional standards. And that's absolutely right. But it takes me right back to the, the Universal Declaration on Archives. Archivists, we don't say archivists respect copyright law. Or sorry, we don't say archivists respect copyright law unless they think they're unlikely to be sued and then they do whatever they want. And that's right, right? I mean, that is right. As a profession, I think, we're not inclined to disrespect <coughs> other people's rights. And yet it's difficult to enable meaningful online access when rights present a barrier or anxiety, even if, if you had a list of all the rights holders and you contacted them all and most of them responded, you might anticipate that most of them would say, yes, this is great, go ahead. But can you take that risk? So that's uh, really the start of a, of a bigger project that Victoria is engaging in, is working through the tensions, that interface, uh, the interplay between wanting to engage um, between respecting people's rights, but also wanting to get as much material 
to enhance digital engagement uh, as much as possible as, uh, as often as we can. But if copyright is a barrier, if copyright is an inhibitor, then how do we square that while still adhering to our professional standards? Standards. That's all I've got to say. Thanks. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.